Chapter 12 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 12. Now then, Maria, said Zerkow, his cracked, strained voice just rising above a whisper, hitching his chair closer to the table. Now then, my girl, let's have it all over again. Tell us about the gold plate. The service. Begin with, there were over a hundred pieces and every one of them gold. I don't know what you're talking about, Zerkow, answered Maria. There never was no gold plate, no gold service. I guess you must have dreamed it. Maria and the red-headed Polish Jew had been married about a month after the McTeague's picnic, which had ended in such lamentable fashion. Zerkow had taken Maria home to his wretched hovel in the alley back of the flat, and the flat had been obliged to get another maid of all work. Time passed, a month, six months, a whole year went by. At length Maria gave birth to a child, a wretched, sickly child, with not even strength enough nor wits enough to cry. At the time of its birth Maria was out of her mind, and continued in a state of dementia for nearly ten days. She recovered just in time to make the arrangements for the baby's burial. Neither Zerkow nor Maria was much affected by either the birth or the death of this little child. Zerkow had welcomed it with pronounced disfavor, since it had a mouth to be fed and wants to be provided for. Maria was out of her head so much of the time that she could scarcely remember how it looked when alive. The child was a mere incident in their lives, a thing that had come undesired and had gone unregretted. It had not even a name, a strange hybrid little being, come and gone within a fortnight's time, yet combining in its puny little body the blood of the Hebrew, the Pole, and the Spaniard. But the birth of this child had peculiar consequences. Maria came out of her dementia, and in a few days the household settled itself again to its sordid regime, and Maria went about her duties as usual. Then one evening, about a week after the child's burial, Zerkow had asked Maria to tell him the story of the famous service of gold plate for the hundredth time, Zerkow had come to believe in this story infallibly. He was immovably persuaded that at one time Maria or Maria's people had possessed these hundred golden dishes. In his perverted mind the hallucination had developed still further. Not only had that service of gold plate once existed, but it existed now, entire, intact. Not a single burnished golden piece of it was missing. It was somewhere. Somebody had it, locked away in that leather trunk with its quilted lining and round brass locks, it was to be searched for and secured, to be fought for, to be gained at all hazards. Maria must know where it was. By dint of questioning, Zerkow would surely get the information from her. Some day, if only he was persistent, he would hit upon the right combination of questions, the right suggestion that would disentangle Maria's confused recollections. Maria would tell him where the thing was kept, was concealed, was buried, and he would go to that place and secure it, and all that wonderful gold would be his for ever and ever. This service of plate had come to be Zerkow's mania. On this particular evening, about a week after the child's burial, in the wretched back room of the junk shop, Zerkow had made Maria sit down to the table opposite him, the whiskey bottle and the red glass tumbler with its broken base between them, and had said, Now then, Maria, tell us that story of the gold dishes again. Maria stared at him, an expression of perplexity coming into her face. "'What gold dishes?' said she. "'The ones your people used to own in Central America. "'Come on, Maria, begin, begin.' "'The Jew craned himself forward, "'his lean fingers clawing eagerly at his lips. "'What gold plate?' said Maria, 
frowning at him as she drank her whiskey. What gold plate? I don't know what you're talking about, Zerkow. Zerkow sat back in his chair, staring at her. Why, your people's gold dishes, what they used to eat off of. You've told me about it a hundred times. You're crazy, Zerkow, said Maria. Push the bottle here, will you? Come now, insisted Zerkow, sweating with desire. Come now, my girl, don't be a fool. Let's have it. Let's have it. Begin now. There were more than a hundred pieces, and every one of them gold. Oh, you know. Come on. Come on. I don't remember nothing of the kind, protested Maria, reaching for the bottle. Zerkow snatched it from her. You fool, he wheezed, trying to raise his broken voice to a shout. You fool, don't you dare try and cheat me, or I'll do for you. You know about the gold plate, and you know where it is. Suddenly he pitched his voice at the prolonged rasping shout with which he made his street cry. He rose to his feet, his long prehensile fingers curled into fists. He was menacing, terrible in his rage. He leaned over Maria, his fists in her face. I believe you've got it, he yelled. I believe you've got it and are hiding it from me. Where is it? Where is it? Is it here? He rolled his eyes wildly about the room. Hey, hey, he went on, shaking Maria by the shoulders. Where is it? Is it here? Tell me where it is. Tell me or I'll do for you. It ain't here, cried Maria, wrenching from him. It ain't anywhere. What gold plate? What are you talking about? I don't remember nothing about no gold plate at all. No, Maria did not remember. The trouble and turmoil of her mind consequent upon the birth of her child seemed to have readjusted her disordered ideas upon this point. Her mania had come to a crisis which in subsiding had cleared her brain of its one illusion. She did not remember. Or it was possible that the gold plate she had once remembered had had some foundation in fact that her recital of its splendors had been truth, sound and sane. It was possible that now her forgetfulness of it was some form of brain trouble, a relic of the dementia of childbirth. At all events Maria did not remember. The idea of the gold plate had passed entirely out of her mind, and it was now Zerkow who labored under its hallucination. It was now Zerkow, the raker of the city's muck-heap, the searcher after gold, that saw that wonderful service in the eye of his perverted mind. It was he who could now describe it in a language almost eloquent. Maria had been content merely to remember it, but Zerkow's avarice goaded him to a belief that it was still in existence, hid somewhere, perhaps in that very house, stowed away there by Maria. For it stood to reason, didn't it, that Maria could not have described it with such wonderful accuracy and such careful detail unless she had seen it recently. The day before, perhaps, or that very day, or that very hour, that very hour. Look out for yourself, he whispered hoarsely to his wife. Look out for yourself, my girl. I'll hunt for it, and hunt for it, and hunt for it. And some day I'll find it. I will, you'll see. I'll find it. I'll find it. And if I don't, I'll find a way that'll make you tell me where it is. I'll make you speak. Believe me, I will. I will, my girl. Trust me for that. And at night Maria would sometimes wake to find Zerkow gone from the bed, and would see him burrowing into some corner by the light of his dark lantern, and would hear him mumbling to himself. There were more than a hundred pieces, and every one of them gold. When the leather trunk was opened it fair dazzled your eyes. Why, just that punch bowl was worth a fortune, I guess. Solid, solid, heavy, rich, pure gold, 
nothing but gold. Gold. Heaps and heaps of it. What a glory. I'll find it yet. I'll find it. It's here somewheres. Hid somewheres in this house. At length his continued ill success began to exasperate him. One day he took his whip from his junk wagon and thrashed Maria with it, gasping the while. Where is it, you beast? Where is it? Tell me where it is. I'll make you speak. I don't know. I don't know, cried Maria, dodging his blows. I'd tell you, Zerkow, if I knew, but I don't know nothing about it. How can I tell you if I don't know? Then one evening matters reached a crisis. Marcus Schuller was in his room, the room in the flat just over McTeague's parlors, which he had always occupied. It was between eleven and twelve o'clock. The vast house was quiet. Polk Street outside was very still, except for the occasional whir and trundle of a passing cable car and the persistent calling of ducks and geese in the deserted market directly opposite. Marcus was in his shirt-sleeves, perspiring and swearing with exertion, as he tried to get all his belongings into an absurdly inadequate trunk. The room was in great confusion. It looked as though Marcus was about to move. He stood in front of his trunk, his precious silk hat in its hat-box in his hand. He was raging at the perverseness of a pair of boots that refused to fit in his trunk, no matter how he arranged them. "'I've tried you so, and I've tried you so,' he exclaimed fiercely between his teeth. "'And you won't go.' He began to swear horribly, grabbing at the boots with his free hand. "'Pretty soon I won't take you at all. I won't, for a fact.' He was interrupted by a rush of feet upon the back stairs, and a clamorous pounding upon his door. He opened it to let in Maria Macapa, her hair disheveled, and her eyes starting with terror. "'Oh, Mr. Scholler,' she gasped. "'Lock the door quick. Don't let him get me. He's got a knife, and he says sure he's going to do for me if I don't tell him where it is.' "'Who has? What has? Where is what?' shouted Marcus, flaming with excitement upon the instant. He opened the door and peered down the dark hall, both fists clenched, ready to fight. He did not know whom, and he did not know why. "'It's Zerkow,' wailed Maria, pulling him back into the room and bolting the door. "'And he's got a knife as long as that. "'Oh, my Lord, here he comes now. Ain't that him? Listen.' Zerkow was coming up the stairs, calling for Maria. "'Don't you let him get me, will you, Mr. Scholler?' gasped Maria. "'I'll break him in two, shouted Marcus, livid with rage. "'Think I'm afraid of his knife?' "'I know where you are,' cried Zerkow on the landing outside. "'You're in Scholler's room. "'What are you doing in Scholler's room at this time of night? "'Come out of there. You ought to be ashamed. "'I'll do for you yet, my girl. "'Come out of there once and see if I don't. "'I'll do for you myself, you dirty Jew,' shouted Marcus, "'unbolting the door and running out into the hall. "'I want my wife,' exclaimed the Jew, backing down the stairs. "'What you mean by running away from me and going into your room?' "'Look out, he's got a knife,' cried Maria through the crack of the door. "'Ah, there you are. Come out of that and come back home,' exclaimed Zerkow. "'Get out of here yourself,' cried Marcus, advancing on him angrily. "'Get out of here. Maria's got to come, too.' "'Get out of here,' vociferated Marcus. "'And put up that knife. I see it. You needn't try and hide it behind your leg. Give it to me, anyhow,' he shouted suddenly and before Zerkow was aware, Marcus had wrenched it away. Now, get out of here. Zerkow backed away, peering and peeping over Marcus's shoulder. 
I want Maria. Get out of here. Get along out or I'll put you out. The street door closed. The Jew was gone. Ha, huh, snorted Marcus, swelling with arrogance. Ha, huh, think I'm afraid of his knife? I ain't afraid of anybody, he shouted pointedly, for McTeague and his wife, roused by the clamor, were peering over the banisters from the landing above. Not of anybody, repeated Marcus. Maria came out into the hall. Is he gone? Is he sure gone? What was the trouble? inquired Marcus, suddenly. I woke up about an hour ago, Maria explained, and Zerkow wasn't in bed. Maybe he hadn't come to bed at all. He was down on his knees by the sink, and he'd pried up some boards off the floor and was digging there. He had his dark lantern. He was digging with that knife, I guess, and all the time he kept mumbling to himself. More than a hundred pieces, and every one of em gold. More than a hundred pieces, and every one of em gold. Then all of a sudden he caught sight of me. I was sitting up in bed, and he jumped up and came at me with his knife, and he says, Where is it? Where is it? I know you got it hid somewhere. Where is it? Tell me or I'll knife you. I kind of fooled him and kept him off till I got my wrapper on, and then I run out. I didn't dare stay. Well, what did you tell him about your gold dishes for in the first place? cried Marcus. I never told him, protested Maria, with the greatest energy. I never told him. I never heard of any gold dishes. I don't know where he got the idea. He must be crazy. By this time Trina and McTeague, old Grannis and little Miss Baker, all the lodgers on the upper floors of the flat, had gathered about Maria. Trina and the dentist, who had gone to bed, were partially dressed, and Trina's enormous mane of black hair was hanging in two thick braids far down her back. But late as it was, old Grannis and the retired dressmaker had still been up and about when Maria had aroused them. "'Why, Maria,' said Trina, "'you always used to tell us about your gold dishes. "'You said your folks used to have them.' "'Never, never, never,' exclaimed Maria, vehemently. "'You folks must all be crazy. "'I never heard of any gold dishes.' "'Well,' spoke up Miss Baker, "'you're a queer girl, Maria. "'That's all I can say.' "'She left the group and returned to her room. "'Old Grannis watched her go from the corner of his eye, "'and in a few moments followed her, "'leaving the group as unnoticed as he had joined it. "'By degrees the flat quieted down again. "'Trina and McTeague returned to their rooms. "'I guess I'll go back now,' said Maria. "'He's all right now. "'I ain't afraid of him so long as he ain't got his knife.' "'Well, say,' Marcus called to her as she went downstairs, "'if he gets funny again, you just yell out. "'I'll hear you. "'I won't let him hurt you.' Marcus went into his room again and resumed his wrangle with the refractory boots. His eye fell on Zerkow's knife, a long, keen-bladed hunting knife with a buckhorn handle. "'I'll take you along with me,' he exclaimed suddenly. "'I'll just need you where I'm going.' Meanwhile, old Miss Baker was making tea to calm her nerves after the excitement of Maria's incursion. This evening she went so far as to make tea for two, laying an extra place on the other side of her little tea-table, setting out a cup and saucer and one of the Gorham's silver spoons— Close upon the other side of the partition, old Grannis bound uncut numbers of the nation. "'Do you know what I think, Mac?' said Trina, when the couple had returned to their rooms. "'I think Marcus is going away.' "'What? What?' muttered the dentist, very sleepy and stupid. "'What are you saying? What's that about Marcus?' "'I believe Marcus has been packing up the last two or three days. I wonder if he's going away.' "'Who's going away?' said McTeague, blinking at her. "'Oh, go to bed,' said Trina, pushing him good-naturedly. "'Mac, you're the stupidest man I ever knew.' But it was true. 
Marcus was going away. Trina received a letter the next morning from her mother. The carpet-cleaning and upholstery business in which Mr. Sipa had involved himself was going from bad to worse. Mr. Sipa had even been obliged to put a mortgage upon their house. Mrs. Sipa didn't know what was to become of them all. Her husband had even begun to talk of immigrating to New Zealand. Meanwhile, she informed Trina that Mr. Sipa had finally come across a man with whom Marcus could go in with on a ranch, a cattle ranch in the southeastern portion of the state. Her ideas were vague upon the subject, but she knew that Marcus was wildly enthusiastic at the prospect, and was expected down before the end of the month. In the meantime, could Trina send them fifty dollars? "'Marcus is going away after all, Mac,' said Trina to her husband that day, as he came out of his parlors and sat down to the lunch of sausages, mashed potatoes, and chocolate in the sitting-room. "'Huh?' said the dentist, a little confused. "'Who's going away? Scholler going away? Why Scholler going away?' Trina explained. "'Oh,' growled McTeague, behind his thick mustache. "'He can go far before I'll stop him.' "'And say, Mac,' continued Trina, pouring the chocolate, "'what do you think? Mama wants me—wants us to send her fifty dollars. She says they're hard up.' "'Well,' said the dentist, after a moment, "'well, I guess we can send it, can't we?' "'Oh, that's easy to say,' complained Trina, her little chin in the air, her small, pale lips pursed. "'I wonder if Mama thinks we're millionaires.' "'Trina, you're getting to be regular stingy,' muttered McTeague. "'You're getting worse and worse every day.' But fifty dollars is fifty dollars, Mac. Just think how long it takes you to earn fifty dollars. Fifty dollars! That's two months of our interest. Well, said McTeague, easily, his mouth full of mashed potato, you got a lot saved up. Upon every reference to that little hoard in the brass match-safe and chamois-skin bag at the bottom of her trunk, Trina bridled on the instant. Don't talk that way, Mac. A lot of money. What do you call a lot of money? I don't believe I've got fifty dollars saved. Ho! Oh, exclaimed McTeague. Ho! Oh, I guess you got near a hundred and fifty. That's what I guess you got. I've not. I've not, declared Trina. And you know I've not. I wish Mama hadn't asked me for any money. Why can't she be a little more economical? I manage all right. No. No, I can't possibly afford to send her fifty. Oh, pshaw! What will you do, then? grumbled her husband. I'll send her twenty-five this month, and tell her I'll send the rest as soon as I can afford it. Trina, you're a regular little miser, said McTeague. I don't care, answered Trina, beginning to laugh. I guess I am, but I can't help it, and it's a good fault. Trina put off sending this money for a couple of weeks, and her mother made no mention of it in her next letter. Oh, I guess if she wants it so bad, said Trina, she'll speak about it again so she again postponed the sending of it. Day by day she put it off. When her mother asked her for it a second time, it seemed harder than ever for Trina to part with even half the sum requested. She answered her mother, telling her that they were very hard up themselves for that month, but that she would send down the amount in a few weeks. "'I'll tell you what we'll do, Mac,' she said to her husband. "'You send half, and I'll send half. We'll send twenty-five dollars altogether. Twelve and a half apiece. That's an idea. How will that do?' "'Sure.' Sure, McTeague had answered, giving her the money. Trina sent McTeague's twelve dollars, but never sent the twelve that was to be her share. One day the dentist happened to ask her about it. You sent that twenty-five to your mother, didn't you? said he. Oh, long ago, answered Trina, without thinking. 
In fact, Trina never allowed herself to think very much of this affair, and in fact, another matter soon came to engross her attention. One Sunday evening, Trina and her husband were in their sitting room together. It was dark, but the lamp had not been lit. McTeague had brought up some bottles of beer from the Weinstube on the ground floor, where the branch post office used to be, but they had not opened the beer. It was a warm evening in summer. Trina was sitting on McTeague's lap in the bay window, and had looped back the Nottingham curtain so the two could look out into the darkened street and watch the moon coming up over the glass roof of the huge public baths. On occasions they sat like this for an hour or so, philandering, Trina cuddling herself down upon McTeague's enormous body, rubbing her cheek against the grain of his unshaven chin, kissing the bald spot on the top of his head, or putting her fingers into his ears and eyes. At times a brusque access of passion would seize upon her, and with a nervous little sigh she would clasp his thick red neck in both her small arms and whisper in his ear, "'Do you love me, Mac, dear? Love me big? Big? Sure, do you love me as much as you did when we were married?' Puzzled, McTeague would answer, "'Well, you know it, don't you, Trina?' "'But I want you to say so. Say so always and always.' "'Well, I do. Of course I do. Say it, then.' "'Well, then, I love you. "'But you don't say it of your own accord. "'Well, what? "'What? "'What? "'I don't understand,' stammered the dentist, bewildered. "'There was a knock on the door. "'Confused and embarrassed, as if they were not married, "'Trina scrambled off McTeague's lap, "'hastening to light the lamp, whispering, "'Put on your coat, Mac, and smooth your hair, "'and making gestures for him to put the beer-bottles out of sight. "'She opened the door and uttered an exclamation.' "'Why, Cousin Mark,' she said. McTeague glared at him, struck speechless, confused beyond expression. Marcus Scholler, perfectly at his ease, stood in the doorway, smiling with great affability. "'Say,' he remarked, "'can I come in?' Taken all aback, Trina could only answer, "'Why, I suppose so. Yes, of course, come in.' "'Yes, yes, come in,' exclaimed the dentist, suddenly, speaking without thought. "'Have some beer?' he added, struck with an idea. "'No, thanks, doctor,' said Marcus, pleasantly. McTeague and Trina were puzzled. What could it all mean? Did Marcus want to become reconciled to his enemy? "'I know,' Trina said to herself. "'He's going away, and he wants to borrow some money. He won't get a penny, not a penny.' She set her teeth together, hard. "'Well,' said Marcus, "'how's business, doctor?' "'Oh,' said McTeague, uneasily. "'Oh, I don't know.' I guess, I guess, he broke off in helpless embarrassment. They had all sat down by now. Marcus continued, holding his hat and his cane, the black wand of ebony with the gold top presented to him by the Improvement Club. Ah, said he, wagging his head and looking about the sitting room, you people have got the best fixed rooms in the whole flat. Yes, sir, you have, for a fact. He glanced from the lithograph framed in gilt and red plush, the two little girls at their prayers, to the I'm Grandpa and I'm Grandma pictures, noted the clean white matting and the gay worsted tidies over the chair backs, and appeared to contemplate in ecstasy the framed photograph of McTeague and Trina in their wedding finery. Well, the two of you are pretty happy together, ain't you? said he, smiling good humoredly. Oh, we don't complain, answered Trina. Plenty of money, lots to do, everything fine, hey? We've got lots to do, returned Trina, thinking to head him off but we've not got lots of money. But evidently Marcus wanted no money. Well, Cousin Trina, he said, rubbing his knee, I'm going away. Yes, Mama wrote me. You're going on a ranch. 
I'm going and ranching with an English duck, corrected Marcus. Mr. Sipa has fixed things. We'll see if we can't raise some cattle. I know a lot about horses, and he's ranched some before, this English duck, and then I'm going to keep my eye open for a political chance down there. I got some introductions from the president of the Improvement Club. I'll work things somehow, oh, sure. How long are you going to be gone? asked Trina. Marcus stared. Why, I ain't ever coming back, he vociferated. I'm going tomorrow, and I'm going for good. I come to say goodbye. Marcus stayed for upwards of an hour that evening. He talked on easily and agreeably, addressing himself as much to McTeague as to Trina. At last he rose. Well, goodbye, Doc. Goodbye, Marcus, returned McTeague. The two shook hands. Guess we won't ever see each other again, continued Marcus. But good luck to you, Doc. Hope some day you'll have the patience standing in line on the stairs. Ah, I guess so, I guess so, said the dentist. Goodbye, Cousin Trina. Goodbye, Marcus, answered Trina. You be sure to remember me to Mama and Papa and everybody. I'm going to make two great big sets of Noah's Ark animals for the twins on their next birthday. Auguste is too old for toys. But you can tell the twins that I'll make them some great big animals. Goodbye. Success to you, Marcus. Goodbye. Goodbye. Good luck to you both. Goodbye, Cousin Mark. Goodbye, Marcus. He was gone. End of chapter 12